What's up, gang? You're listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And in the Al-Qaeda studio again today are the production team, Pete Gabnison, or what the fuck? <laughs> Pete, fuck, this is a bad start. Pete, Pete McKenzie and Gabby Gabby, G- Gabby Gabberson. <laughs> Morning, yeah, I have not had a second cup of coffee. Gabby, Very tired. <laughs> Gabby Gabberson and Petey Baggison. <laughs> the names will be in the show notes. <laughs> oh man. Fuck. Okay. So I'm so tired because my I had to do some media stuff last night and it kind of like wires my brain and then I can't cool down for bedtime and so I stay up late and then it's a it's a vicious cycle. My pet issue of North Korea is back in the news. So uh, last week, North Korea tested a submarine launch ballistic missile, kind of a big deal. And just since the first summit between Kim and Trump, which is we're ostensibly in this like year of diplomacy, year and a half. And what we've actually seen is that during this period of like nice, nice, North Korea, according to the Defense Intelligence Agency, has produced enriched enough uranium for 12 more bombs beyond what it had before the diplomacy started. So we're on this track of of a shit show. It's a bad trajectory. We're barreling toward a like preventable crisis or toward Trump pulling a stunt with, uh, you know, Asia policy, Korea policy, something with like troop reduction or allies. Something crazy is going to happen. Okay. Van, you had a really interesting observation about the timing of those talks and that they would be taking place Did during I? on Twitter. I saw. Okay, um, well, stay off Twitter. That's for later. <laughs> oh, is this just <laughs> just plugging your reckons? Oh, okay. Um, about you uh, said plugging your reckons, which is like a very Kiwi thing to say. Go ahead. <laughs> um, your your perception that um working level talks will take place during the winter freeze for the North Koreans, so they won't actually be. Like, oh, be- yeah. They can yeah. Make pretends. So it's the period before the winter training cycle, which is what we're entering into now. That's a period where North Korea, for just purely seasonal reasons, bureaucratic reasons, does not tend to test missiles. It's just it's like an, a built in moratorium. And they're going to leverage that pause that they have to take anyways every year. And they're going to do working level talks at that time. And the generous interpretation is like, well, they don't want to spoil the mood. The the obvious should be interpretation is that like they wouldn't have done it anyway (laughs) yeah like and that that implies also that like if you do it during a different time of year they're probably just going to test in the middle of talks and then you have to eat it and so so uh i don't know it's not a concession north koreans are master negotiators and uh we've been eating a shit sandwich for a while but North Korea is not the only news. No. The Trump storyline continues on impeachment. Yeah, I'm also exhausted, not for good reasons uh, on my end. I've just been <laughs> relentlessly following the New York Times Twitter feed, which is probably, you know, the most sad thing I've ever said. Uh, but it's been really interesting. Um, at the moment, when we're recording this, the big news is that um, the whistleblower approached Adam Schiff's staff on the Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, before submitting a complaint through the uh, intelligence community inspector general, mm-hmm. which has, you know, exploded predictably. Um, and Trump with, is using to try and smear Schiff. And, yeah, yeah, calling it a, a whole partisan witch hunt. And it's, you know, yeah. it is a bit of a nightmare, um, but fascinating to watch. Really, really interesting. Yeah, it's the, the, the interesting thing about the impeachment kind of media storyline is that now it's a storyline that Trump 
doesn't get to drive. Mm. So he drives the North Korea storyline, the Iran storyline. Uh, he drives the immigration storyline, everything, basically everything. And for three years, Democrats have been playing catch up. The media have been his bitch. And now we're in a place where Democrats have enough power, not enough to like necessarily unseat Trump, but enough to force media attention on Trump corruption and the impeachment and that and make that a continuous beat. And uh, Trump is forced to react. And the way he's reacting now is by like losing his fucking mind and going doubling down on conspiracy theories. Threatening civil war. Yeah, it's a shit show. But it all did. I mean, we don't pretend to tell you the news. We want to interpret it for you. And it all brought up to my mind the question of how foreign policy professionals and foreign policy officers over in the States and indeed in any capital around the world should interact with, you know, partisan institutions like this. And I mean, at the extreme worst case scenario, you are the whistleblower getting tarred with association with the Democrats. But there's obviously a spectrum. And I thought this could be quite a cool question for our segment Rookie Move. Another natural segue to the rookie move segment. <laughs> it's a good way to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's a good question. So it's like, how do or how should sort of foreign policy technocrats mm. who are ostensibly nonpartisan, how should they interact with the partisan world of politics? Yeah. And that doesn't need to be whistleblowing. It can be, you know, pushing yeah. their foreign policy agenda, trying to get issues noticed or attention paid. You know, there's a whole spectrum. And yeah, it does yeah. seem fraught for a yeah i mean so in a legal sense there in the u.s at least there's a hatch act that puts restraints on government employees engaging in partisan activity on another level like national security and foreign policy is politics that it, mm. it occurs in a political system the budgets are determined by congress which is the most partisan institution in the world mm. like um so the fact the the idea that foreign policy is not politics or it shouldn't be is is kind of like a utopianism or a naivete but there are like i would say a couple different ways that you can make a political move with foreign policy, even when you're trying to just be the, the the analyst or the wonk or whatever. One, the most obvious is to like bureaucratize your policy issue. You're actually, that's like a jujitsu move in a sense. Like you're doing the political move of taking a policy issue out of the realm of politics and sticking it in the bureaucracy. Keeps it alive and out of being a political football. So what does that what does that look like? Is that you know? Well, so like nuclear proliferation is a good example. Where in like the, the Bush era, WMD became this obsession, and it was hyper political. It helped justify the Iraq War, uh, erroneously, and so like in that context, it was super political. But what the Bush administration did, and this ostensibly this is thought of as apolitical the bureaucracy is technocratic it's like post-enlightenment rational it's neoliberal like that's a form of politics mm. like to, to even to think in cost-benefit terms about something is like its own political don't like don't think you're not doing politics when you're doing that you just have a particular kind of bias yeah so they built an entire apparatus in the national security system around nukes, around chemical and biological weapons, et cetera. And so much of this has been institutionalized in very like anodyne ways. And there are entire careers around nukes and countering proliferation that exist that are very apolitical, that survived and thrived under Obama. And Obama was the anti-Bush, you know, and Trump is the anti-Obama. He's the anti-everybody. And- all these these 
like sort of non-proliferation regimes and institutions still exist and are still functioning. You know, it, nuclear proliferation is not an issue that is a political football for the most part, even though it once was. So you had high level officials and incidentally, like John Bolton and Rumsfeld uh, taking this hot political football and making it sort of permanent issue in the bureaucracy. The appearance is that it's like not political, but right. it's, it's hyper political. Everything is. Uh, another way is to actually um, like bipartisanize a foreign policy issue. So it, it's another move that is ostensibly apolitical where you're depoliticizing it, but you're actually hyper-politicizing it in mm. the sense that you're trying to build a consensus. And so like liberal internationalism is a good example of that. So it's it's entrenched. It's become like a habit of thought in U.S. foreign policy in Washington. Republicans and Democrats, it's not taboo to... Uh, share that basic premise about like liberal foreign policies and city on a hill and you have the rhetoric at least of human rights and democracy promotion and all of that attached to this big giant war machine mm. that makes it there's a symbiosis there somehow um, and so that like to, to bipartisanize a foreign policy issue is a different kind of political move and you may not have a lot of a control over deliberately bipartisanizing something like how many things yeah. do the Republicans and Democrats share in common. Um, but that's another like political move that's possible. Um, and then the one that is more common, especially now, is to kind of localize it. And this is like the traditional way that you would think of a foreign policy technocrat trying to kind of enter politics or like openly politicize something, which is like when you localize something, you're taking your pet issue and then you're grafting it onto the agenda of, you know, whichever party right. or whichever politician. And so you're basically trying to sell a politico or a political entity on the merits that, like, hey, this it's in your interest. This is this is totally congruent with your own priorities, your own platform. Um, so you have, what is it? I've already forgot what I said. Bureaucratize, bipartisanize, and localize. And with localizing, you're trying to find like a Kennedy lens for, I don't know, like Kenyan development to try and get Mitch McConnell on board. Is that basically the premise? Yeah, or? yeah. You're 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 trying to find what it is in their interests that align with how you see your foreign policy issue. Right. Yeah. Um, and. It's a fraught world. Um, foreign policy technocrats do not necessarily, like, they, they will tell you, they, especially publicly, they'll say, like, you, you shouldn't do that. And there are laws that prevent you from doing it in certain ways. But in a world where everything is politics, like, that's just the reality. Um, and one of the things that we see now in the past three years with Trump in, in the area of defense and uh, conservative foreign policy technocrats in particular, they have openly aligned themselves with the Trump narrative, working for Trump. And it's it, it, for like, I know a lot of these people, they're doing it in the name of like, they're, they're coming from an analytical place, right? They see, they see like global trends. They don't want America to be on the losing end of global trends, et cetera. And, uh, or they're trying to sustain the liberal international order. They're pursuing their lodestar. Yeah. And their technocratic lodestar. <laughs> And so that's what that's why they've aligned themselves with Trump, at least in theory. That's why they tell themselves they've aligned themselves with Trump. But they end up, of course, like being the handmaiden of the devil. Yeah. And then on top of that, they don't. Trump doesn't share their views about this stuff. So you end up you have U.S.-China competition, and the technocrats, the conservative technocrats, are using 
Trump's predilection for competition with China to pursue great power competition in the military sense, in the deep political sense. But then Trump is staffed by a bunch of people who are basically ethno-nationalists, like far right wing nut jobs. And so what you have is the Trump administration talking this clash of civilizations shit mm. about like that's how they're characterizing US-China competition. And the the conservative establishment people I know who are actively working for Trump, actively supporting Trump, they are like, oh, like they it make they yeah. they hate when the administration says that like oh, well, this is a class, our civilizations are incompatible and that's why we're competing with China. And like that that undermines- Everything. It, yeah. And, but they all, that's the price you pay for politicizing your own agenda in the sense that you're trying to yoke your issue of China great power competition to this shit show, mm. you know? And so like the US-China competition thing is this great example of how trying to play politics can go wrong- <laughs> Um, and yet it happens anyways. So. Yeah. All right. So now it's time for our stay off Twitter segment. The perfect. We curate Twitter so you don't have to. Um, and I thought that, uh, I was really fascinated. I I'll, I'll go first. Um, and it's from Senator McAllister. Uh, who is the senator from Nebraska. And the, the tweet reads, Conspiracy theories are having a pernicious effect on our society and we are currently ill-equipped to deal with the new challenges that they pose. Even if something is patently false, repetition injects it into our brains, as any advertiser will attest. Yeah. And I think that is a grim and brilliant summary of the position that we're in. The senator then goes on to to connect it to Trump and talks about how he says unbelievable falsehoods that are so unbelievable that the mainstream press must report. And as a result, they kind of feed their way into our discourse and just kind of hang there and infect us. And he's a Republican senator from the heartland. Mm. And so to me, this is this is like the canary in the coal mine. This is as close as you should reasonably get to Republicans repudiating Trump. Mm. And this is a kind of hardcore He's not like some far right senator, but like he's he comes from a place where you would expect that he would he, he faces like the Trump loyalty test yeah. problem. The partisan incentive is just overwhelming. Yeah. And still he's he this is like very open kind of defection. And it's a complete rejection of the conspiracy theory politics that seem to have taken over Republican Party by way of Trump. Um, so it's it, it's interesting to me because of who he is yeah. and how he's sort of coming out against Trump effectively. It also raises a question that segues into the tweet that I have, which is the possibility that Trump repeats his own lies so much that he has come to believe them. So Jeet here, who is, he was uh, a writer for The New Republic, which is a lefty magazine, and now he writes, I think, for The Nation, which is... Another lefty magazine. Yeah, leftier than thou. Um, and his he had this short tweet thread that was pretty awesome. He says, quote, We all know Trump spouts conspiracy theories all the time, but the big revelation of Ukraine gate is that this isn't just for show. He believes this shit. The Trumpian deep state conspiracy theory goes something like this. The USA intel community working with allies in Australia and Europe entrapped Trump campaigners in Russiagate in 2015-2016 because they didn't like Trump's heterodox foreign policy views 
Trump believes this. One reason we haven't had a good discussion of Trump's conspiracy theories is the dominant narrative of conspiracies, Hofstadter's paranoid style, is deeply misleading. For Hofstadter, uh, conspiracy theories flourished on the fringes, not among elites. But conspiracy theories don't just belong to masses. Plenty of elites believe in wild and absurd stuff. Who Lost China was an elite debate. J. Edgar Hoover, an elite powerhouse. LBJ thought anti-war movement was created by foreign adversaries. The list goes on and on. So that's his his, his Twitter thread. For reference, uh, Richard Hofstadter, he's not alive anymore, I don't think. He's a, a historian during the Cold War. He wrote a lot about uh, the history of American foreign policy, and he wrote this like seminal book, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, and he had this very famous article, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And basically, he documented a lot of uh, conspiracy theory prominence in U.S. politics, and he noted how so much of it came from the fringe or the underclass of American society. So it's like people who were not, didn't have the like analytical capacity to reason or to make sense of information that came their way. And so they were ripe, they were primed to believe conspiracy theories that played to their prejudices. And so Jeet here, taking the leftist kind of anti-elite view, is being like, well, no, elites are conspiracy theorists too. And there's there's a debate to be had about like whether he's right about that. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but what was super interesting was that he is Jeet in this tweet thread is proposing a a possible way of understanding U.S. foreign policy that's different from what I've heard from anybody else, which is that Trump is consuming conspiracy theories that are emanating from the fringe. He is repeating them a lot, and he's repeating them so much that he's inadvertently brainwashing himself. So, so he's trying to convince his base of of Pizzagate and birtherism or whatever. But then the more he says it, the more he is like indoctrinating himself. Mm. And we're in this fucking nightmare <laughs> where the president's brainwashing himself with horse shit because yeah. that's what he thinks of his base. And you can totally understand, like, you don't have to be dumb to brainwash yourself. I think Trump is, but you, you don't have to be. If right? you just like, say shit over and over, you, you believe it. If you say shit over it. again, and particularly when it's in your interest, right? Like, it is in Trump's interest to believe that he is being comprehensively screwed by deep state operatives in Australia. Yeah. Uh, instead of realizing that he's, you know, consistently screwing up himself. Yeah. That's, you know, entirely a sympathetic reading for him. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so in a in an analytical sense, this this raises the question of like, okay, so how do you explain continuities and changes in foreign policy in the Trump era? And you could take like a geopolitical view, like a realist view, and uh, you could say like, well, it's external factors that are sort of driving foreign policy, and so Trump, you know, it, you put anybody in there, and the, the basic you're still going to be in competition with China, right? And th I think everybody knows that that is at best, an incomplete view or an incomplete way of accounting for U.S. foreign policy today. The Another one that hits home much more closely or much more tied to Trump is like his personal theory of self-aggrandizing diplomacy. So it's this idea that like on, the only I can solve it doctrine. Mm. And it's like, oh, we have this problem with North Korea. Only I can solve it. 
Let me let me get me in a room with Kim Jong Un. Just fucking do it. Get me in the room. Master deal maker. Yeah, and it is it is egocentric and narcissistic and self-aggrandizing. But the if if you believe that you have the the Midas touch, then you believe you do need to get in that room, and then that you will solve it because of your magic. Um, and so you have this like personal theory of diplomacy, which is plausible. I don't know that that's actually right. And then more recently, which you've had like over the past. A few weeks, especially, is kind of like nobody's calling it this, but like Trump corruption theory, which is that the continuities and changes in U.S. foreign policy are a function of Trump trying to get paid and collect side payments for things, trying to like monetize U.S. foreign policy for himself. Mm. Um, and so when you see, and that of course ends up distorting U.S. foreign policy. Um, and then what what this jeet here tweet thread is saying is a fourth hypothesis, which is that Trump is a true believer of conspiracy theories that originate mostly from the fringe, and those conspiracy theories end up leading him to press allies and not allies like China for information that they can then use to confirm conspiracy theories about the deep state being out to get him. So he's using other countries to he's, u- he's using U.S. foreign policy to engage other countries so that other countries can help him politically and particularly to discredit the U.S. intelligence community. And he thinks that he's in the right. Yeah. And, and that's so the terrifying if he believes that, then this whole conspiracy theory hypothesis is true. And so like from a foreign policy analysis perspective, like it's possible that all four of these things are true. Hmm. That's kind of just the way it is. <laughs> But you also want to consider like which theory outperforms the others, like which one performs best. And I mean, Jeet here is making the case that the conspiracy theory theory is the, <laughs> is the the best performing explanation, which is just fascinating, terrifying. But yeah. <laughs> well, also it provides a through line that connects his like old birtherism stuff mm. and paranoia about the Ebola virus to. The Ukraine gate, the, the pressing allies. So you can draw a through line that connects earlier Trump to President Trump in a in a kind of like analytical sense. That's powerful to yeah. be able to account for more of reality than the other, you know, explanations. And it doesn't just unite all those events. It is also kind of self-reinforcing. The fact that Bertherism propelled him onto the national stage and then ultimately played a, a significant role in winning in the presidency by getting in this kind of cultish following. Yeah. You know. The, the victories that he's had by buying into conspiracy theories by nature propel them propel him to engage in more conspiracy theories. Yeah. Would, would be the theory, you know, they've paid off in the past. I'll buy into them again is the subconscious kind of incentive. Yeah. So we're in a, we're like in an episode of Black Mirror. Where's the pig? Yeah. Oh <laughs> All right. So maybe it's time for our armchair analysis segment. Yeah, so this week, our armchair analysis segment uh, is a piece by Michael Fuchs. I think that's how you pronounce it. I think it's Fuchs. Fuchs, okay. I like to say Michael Fuchs, but <laughs> I don't think how, that's right. <laughs> how much do you reckon that was just his nickname at high school? Like? This, guy <laughs> this poor guy. This He's a serious person. I'm sorry. So like, super serious. Super serious. We haven't met, but we sort of know each other, and he's a serious guy. So like, don't, I'm, I'm not delegitimizing him. 
<laughs> so he's a he's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, yeah. um, and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Um, and <laughs> the 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 piece is about how Trump's foreign policy is for sale, and that that set threatens America's national security. So the idea is that regardless of what is motivating Trump's uh, reaching out to foreign countries to enlist them in as kind of partisan agenda, mm-hmm. um, the perception overseas is that. This is a oligarchic, or I think he uses um, this is like a, a mob style of political rule or foreign policy, in that mm. you know you can maybe get a couple of wins by cooperating with uh, Trump, but you never know quite when you're going to have your knees broken by this kind of mobster on the world stage. And so, as a result, even people who can successfully engage with Trump's kind of wheeling and dealing style holding them at arm's length and aren't willing to properly engage, aren't willing to properly cooperate. And everyone else is just so terrified of engaging that they just kind of hold their breath and hope that nobody pays any attention to them and, and refuse to engage with uh, Trump at best for America or at worst actively circumvent America on the world stage. Yeah. So this this piece is so good. Um, and it happens to come out the same week as uh, a piece in the Washington Post by Adam Taylor, which talks about it's it's like all on theme with mm. like Trump's corruption foreign policy. And the Adam Taylor piece kind of reinforces all these points, but with less color, but more kind of evidence saying like, look, when foreign countries and foreign diplomats try to use their strategy to like co-opt Trump, they end up losing. Over and over, across cases, allies, enemies, doesn't matter. If you try to deal with Trump, you know, you're going to end up losing in the end. And then Mira Rapp Hooper, who's a good friend, she just had a piece in Foreign Affairs, too, called The Usurpation of Foreign Policy. Like, it just came out and it it reinforces this point, too. And so this is the new theme of, of U.S. foreign policy is corruption. And so this is obviously super problematic. The Michael Fuchs piece... Get, get that name fucked. right. <laughs> um, it's he's he's pointing to this big problem that I think Washington has not reconciled itself to yet. Although with all these op eds, maybe it's starting to. Which is like it's not just that what Trump is doing is corrupt and illegal. He's hollowing out the credibility of U.S. foreign policy. Mm. Like our, our even our lip service to liberal values is democratic values is bullshit. Mm. And we are, Mike had this great line where he was saying something like countries, like America is such a you know great power or whatever that countries will have no choice but to deal with us. However, they will be dealing with us in a transactional way as if we're autocrats. And that's, that makes us basically no different from China. And if it's transactional, it means that like we can't be counted on and they're going to hedge against us at every chance they get. So in the best case scenario, the next president is going to inherit a foreign policy apparatus that has just been kind of delegitimated. It's been rendered into, you know, the American equivalent of like Chinese foreign policy, which is awful. Yeah. And the only way to reverse it is to punish the hell out of Trump and his lackeys. So like Bill Barr, McMulvaney, Pompeo, Pence even probably. Like if you don't hold these people to account, then you're normalizing the behavior and you're failing to send the signal that they were an anomaly. Mm. So it's possible to recover U.S. foreign policy. It's hard, but it's possible if you can send the right signal that they were they were not U.S. foreign policy. Which is not something that America has been great at doing previously. I mean, when Obama yeah, acknowledging came into our faults is like not. Yeah. Well, well, even like acknowledging faults is one thing, but like 
when Obama came into the White House and turn a, turn a new page and kind of move on from the torture program or from any of the kind of lowlights of the George W. Bush presidency. Or like not holding the previous administration yeah, to account. Yeah, not holding the previous administration to account. And that was a, a deliberate decision so as not to kind of inflame partisan tensions or to kind of to have a symbolic break. But it it is very different from the kind of punitive approach to... There's a tradition of not having foreign policy officials be accountable. Mm. Um, that's just a reality. Part of that, though, is because there's no... Like, I think people, a lot of people view that as like a, an evil thing or something, you know, like, or that's proof of Washington corruption. There are no... There are no, in the moment, right and wrong answers in foreign policy. Like, it's a space of judgment. And it's what seems right or wrong depends on the context and the time. And, like, you look back 10 years later and you're like, oh, NATO enlargement was a mistake. And so, like, everything looks good at the time, you know. And you can't get inside somebody's head to know their motives. And everybody's, you know, gaming out the memcons and the phone transcripts. So you never know what's actually being said. It's like you, it's hard to get at intentions mm. and the fact that like our perceptions of what's good or bad or right or wrong changes over time. And so that's why there's no accountability and there's self-dealing by elites. But like that's not the main thing. Um, and so there and then you layer on top of that the issue of like the political context. And so Obama had political incentives to not antagonize, you know, the Bush legacy or whatever. Mm. But yeah, that's all of that is an explanation for like why Obama did what he did. Yeah. That's not that if that's what happens when, you know, Warren or whoever becomes president, that is American foreign policy is going to be feckless. And we're going to be living in this world where like we're pretending America is still great when in reality everybody is like, I don't know, man. Yeah. Like let's keep China around or something awful. We got the first question from Matt Watson. He's asking, uh, where do North Korea's chemical and bioweapons program fit into your paradigm of arms control with North Korea? Oh, good question. Um, so I told him I was going to address this on air. And actually, now that we're here, I feel like it needs a separate episode to address in a meaningful way. Or like, But I, I, I published this thing, this report with the Center for New American Security recently, and it lays out kind of an arms control paradigm for North Korea. So like moving away from denuclearization and focusing on uh, arms control regime. And it's, of course, focused on nukes and missiles, not chem and bio programs. But North Korea does have chem and bio programs. And their chemical weapons program is actually like huge. They have a shitload of chemical weapons. And so that never gets talked about. That's super dangerous. I mean, according to the old Bush paradigm, that's a weapon of mass destruction. The reason why it never gets... So I didn't talk about it because it's just like out of scope of the arms control report. And one of the reasons I one of the reasons why chem doesn't get talked about and bio doesn't get talked about with North Korea at all is because for North Korea, those weapons don't have the same like kind of strategic significance that they do to us. So like we've categorized them as weapons of mass destruction. We see their use or we've we've gone through this process the past 20 years of equating their use to like nuclear use almost. And that could be the case. But for North Korea, like we know North Korea sees chemical weapons as an operational capability. It's just a weapon that they will use as a counterforce weapon. Like in, if there's a fight, they're going to use it to degrade our forces, degrade our capabilities. And so that means it's not it, it's not on the level of something that is nego it's no more negotiable than North Korea's artillery. I mean, like or its tanks like you. So it's it's just not 
in the North Korean mindset as something that is they can put on the table the same way that they could put parts of their missile program on the table, I don't think. So this is that so that's the short answer. Imagine what the long answer would be. So so this I, I want to pick this up again at some point, but um for now, chem chem and bio like don't really fit into the arms control process because of how North Korea sees and treats those programs almost as like being non-strategic but militarily essential. Okay, so for the next question from John Lindsay, he's wondering, is Trump a heel? And what are the key favorite rules for that? Okay, so John Lindsay, uh, for those who don't know, is a big deal um, political scientist at University of Toronto. Uh, he's also a friend, but that probably like hurts his street cred for me calling him a friend. So, <laughs> so his question is, so for those who don't know, a heel in professional wrestling is like the persona of the bad guy. And so, of course, everybody knows professional wrestling is fake. And so if you're- wait, it, wait. What? Wait, what? <laughs> I meant to say spoiler alert first that I forgot. Yeah, so the heel is the the person who plays the heel is playing a role. So are you are you, is he, are you adopting the persona of a bad guy, which means you're like not actually a bad guy, but you're just this is part of politics, the theater of politics, right? And kayfabe is a just it describes the actual process of embodying these characters, like being the performers on stage, but carrying that into your offstage life too. So this is one of these like common things in professional wrestling where like your rivalries with other wrestlers, which is completely fabricated, carries into your normal life and you'll post on Instagram and like you'll you'll do stunts in the streets and stuff. And so like you'll go on uh, press junkets. And so outside of the ring, you pretend like the rivalry is real too, but it is pretend. It's all for ticket sales, right? And there's plenty of wink winks and kind of... Yes. And everybody knows this and everybody loves the kayfabe. And so I described the first Trump-Kim summit famously now as uh, kayfabe because it, everybody knew it was fake, but everybody was buying into it anyway. And I guess that stuck with John. I don't know. Um, so like the question is, is Trump a heel? I think he is a heel, but I think he is also the bad guy in real life. And so... <laughs> This is like when Eminem played himself in Eight Mile. Like, you, it's, you know, like it is a persona, but it's also really him. Like, you haven't seen Eminem do a lot of other acting roles. And uh, so then what are the kayfabe rules for that? That's like such a meta question. I don't even know where to go. Um, that is like building a framework within which we should view everything. <laughs> yeah. If Trump is is artificially the bad guy because that's the political antagonist role and also the really real bad guy then the kayfabe rules probably should just be that like you have to play the rivalry out across all domains why would you at what point would you stop pretending it's like just politics or whatever i don't know so i guess if trump is a heel and a real bad guy then the kayfabe rules are like you just treat him like the the sin that he is yeah i guess i do have an answer for that <laughs> when we when the, when you first read the question i was like i don't think i have an answer for this all right so from sean wolfgang and we're just paraphrasing the question here um he's basically asking are cyber attacks the go-to response for policymakers who feel like they need to do something but they don't want to risk escalation i think so actually there is this view that there so there is a do something bias in u.s foreign policy one but there is this view that like cyber attacks or computer network uh, operations or computer network attack hacking, that that is like cost free 
And there's a bunch of research now that's suggesting that that's not true. And there are all kinds of escalation risks. And especially, actually, John Lindsay has written about this, uh, <laughs> where like the command and control networks for nuclear weapons, if they overlap with those of the target that you're trying to attack with cyber means, then the person who's like nuclear networks you're attacking could think you're trying to take down their nuclear command and control networks, which means that they have to launch before like use or lose. Right. Mm. And so if it's an existential attack when you're taking down command and control of somebody's nukes and that's uh, he, they were focusing and John Lindsay was focusing specifically on us. Like we know that our NC3 networks overlap with other networks. And so, uh, so I think it's wrong to treat cyber as like this magic do something bullet because there are risks that we're not accounting for. But I do think that is what's happening. And it's super dangerous if you take as the example or like the analog the what we've done with drone use or uh, weaponization of finance, like economic sanctions. We did these things when other people couldn't do them and it encouraged other people to then do them too. And so now you have other countries, you have China weaponizing finance just like the US. We had drones, like armed drones have proliferated to, I don't even know how many countries now. Like last time I checked, it was 93 and that was years ago. Um, and so like we've created like a moral hazard around previous instruments of policy that like we've like weaponized. And we're doing that now we did it because it was in a vacuum and because we wanted to do something. Obama didn't want a war. He didn't want boots on the grounds. But you got these drones. Let's just kill people with drones, right? Um, it's like this clean, elegant solution. It's no risk. And um, actually, it creates this moral hazard that future policymakers have to deal with. Um, and that's what's happening right now with cyber, I think. Do you think, uh, Sean, at one point in his longer question, asks whether that's a product of a kind of generational gap between older and older political and military leaders uh, or if it's like a fundamental error in how US leaders view the foreign policy tools that they have available do do you think it's generational yeah or? So those two things those those are not mutually exclusive there is a generational gap just in understanding mm. like the high level guys who actually make decisions are probably not listening old white men <laughs> and they they like I've been in war games where the team lead, who's usually an old white man, no offense, and uh, he he will he will say something crazy in the middle of your war game scenario, like, "Well, let's let's sprinkle some cyber on there," and like that's that's Ooh. a quote, and so <laughs> it's this idea that like, well, we're gonna okay, so the enemy is doing X, we're gonna we're gonna to achieve our goals with minimal risk and minimal cost, we're just gonna throw some cyber at it, and it's like, what, what do you? What do you think this is, man? <laughs> and so that is a generational gap yeah. that's fueling this. But there is also this tendency in the U.S. government in particular that like you can't just stand by, mm. right? Like the problem from hell problem of like you can't just let evil just traipse around the world. Like do something, man. But also don't start a war. So if you got to do something and not start a war, you reach for the tools that like other people don't have that you think are low risk. That's what cyber is. Yeah, yeah, big problem. Um, okay, is that it? All right, guys, that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. Um, if you like us, rate us on iTunes wherever you're listening. If you want to back us, buy us a coffee. Wait, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. And uh, I'll catch you next time. Peace.